0: We uh, have a lot of ground to cover and a little time to get there, and so let's begin. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. The marvelous unity of Christ's body. You know, the past two Saturdays I've read the religion section of the Aniston Star. I read it each week in in just passing form. I usually read Anthony Cook's article pretty in-depth, and the rest of it is usually not worth reading. But uh, the last two weeks have drawn my attention. This week drew my attention because the a topic in the centerpiece front page of the article was, and many of you probably saw it, was on the new bill which has been proposed by a senator from uh, Cottondale in this state. To ban the use of Sharia law in our courts, or uh, the measures actually very broad, bans the use of Sharia law. I look at that very interestedly as a pastor. And it's a whole different discussion for a different day. But it makes me very nervous when we begin to ban the use of uh, any law of religion. Because it's constitutionally impossible to use it in a legal court. And Sharia is basically the way, according to the Muslim belief. I don't agree with them. But you see the dangerous and slippery slope we could be headed down. We're going to ban their use of their law. Now, one of them is elected and he wants to ban the use of any Christian code. Now we are in the soup, as they say. So that's a different discussion for a different day, and you may disagree with me, but I've been watching it, so that piece drew my attention. And what really drew my attention was the imam's statement from the imam just means teacher, and he's teaching in Aniston in the Islamic Center for Religious uh, Unity, I think is the name of it. But anyway, the religious center run by the Islamics in Anniston. And, and in the article, he points out that what I've just told you, that Sharia is not a legal court code. It is a way, we believe, to get to God. And if you, and he points out, if you ban this, then be careful what you wish for. Because you, they may ban Christian codes, and they may ban Jewish codes, and they may ban all these other things. But in his statement, it was revealing to me that he, like many, unfortunately, in the church, don't understand what the Bible is. Well, I'm not shocked that he doesn't understand. But he doesn't get it. He says that the Bible, this Word of God, is like the Quran in that it is a book of things that must be done. Rules. The Bible is not a book of rules. I I recognize that many read it this way, but that's not how it's written. The Bible is one book about one main character carrying out one plan of redemption for those who are in Christ. The Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is one book about one character, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, carrying out a plan in Christ to unify people of God. That that's what the Bible's about. The Bible is a book of relationship. It is not a book of rules. The Bible is a book about the beauty of a central character, God, particularly as He communicates Himself to us in Christ. And so when you read Genesis, and when you read Leviticus, and when you read Malachi, and when you read Matthew, and Timothy, and Revelation, you should be reading it not like rules, but rather like relationship. Look at who's in this book. This is the Son of God. And we should read it that way, and and not as a book of religious code or ethic. And so the Bible is unified organically around the character of Christ. You may not have seen it that way. I'm, I'm well aware of that. Many in our pulpits don't preach it that way. They preach it as if we have a Jewish book, the Old Testament, which Jesus, they wouldn't say it this way, which Jesus completes and improves, bringing about a bracketed time of existence known as the church, before He reinstitutes the legal codes of the Old Testament In a rain from Jerusalem on the earth. That's very dangerous. And the reason it's very dangerous is that's not how Jesus taught the book. And that's not how Paul teaches it in our passage. He doesn't teach it that way because that's not the way it was written. The Bible was written to show us the unity that can only be had through Christ. The unity that can only be had, the way to God, is only through Christ. And once we're unified, grafted in, brought together in that unified body, the body of Christ, it will exist for all time, throughout all eternity. And in the end, we will see a great reconciliation. One of the proofs of the fact that so many miss this is, is the variant degrees of, of separation that have, exist in our churches. One of the proofs that Jesus is coming again, you need to know this. One of the proofs, when somebody says, how do you know Jesus is coming again? You say, because His people are unified. If His people are not unified and they're not loving one another, then it doesn't preach that He's coming again. It doesn't. Preach the message that it's supposed to preach. And so we have here, Adam read for us, a great text. In this text, 14 through 18, is the centerpiece of all of Ephesians. This chapter 2 is like the sequoia tree of the New Testament. Uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 would be like a redwood to me, and this would be like a sequoia. Powerful, big, deep-rooted, and beautiful. What we're about to see here should change us and it should encourage us. And so we look in Ephesians chapter 2 and we're going to look and focus on verses 11 through 13 this morning and see this beautiful unity. So let me outline the passage quickly and then we're going to make three points from the passage. First of all, when we look at the passage 11 through 13, we see that Paul is explaining that we are we are. What we are merely according to the flesh doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you get to the final analysis. Secondly, in verse 12, we see that Paul wants to draw our attention to five descriptions of who we were before we came into Christ or we were placed into Christ. And third, he says in verse 13, that now that we are in Christ now that we are in Christ we have been brought near to God okay we were far off and now we're near to God in verse 11 through 22 works a lot like verses 1 through 10 verses 1 through 10 speaking about the condition of all mankind prior to coming to Christ you're dead in your trespasses and sins and when you and once you once in which you once walked According to the course of this world, ensnared by the power of the Spirit of the air, sons of wrath, that's the description, but God, who is rich in mercy, He poured out His love on us. He saved us by His grace, through faith in Christ, so that He might pour out these riches of great love and mercy on us for all the ages to come. That's verses 1 through 7, and then he reiterates the salvation by grace through faith in 9 and 10, says, now that you're alive and you're in Christ and you are alive for all the ages, you are carrying out the work which God prepared for you beforehand. Now, verse 11 connects to that. Look what it says. Therefore... Dio, the word Dio is used. Therefore, which draws us back either to the immediate statement in verse 10 or the whole of verses 1 through 10. And my belief is it draws us back to everything in verses 1 through 10. What Paul's saying, based on what I've just told you in verses 1 through 10, and then he launches off into his next sentence. Now, verses 1 through 10 is about the need for vertical or man, God to man reconciliation. How can we be with God? How can we be connected to Him? He tells us, vertically reconciled, verses 1 through 10. In verses 11 through 22, He's going to launch out and say, now you can be reconciled. Because you're reconciled with God, now you Gentiles and Jews are reconciled. You are brought close to each other. I often use the analogy in marriage in counseling, talking to those who are about to be married, or even those who are struggling in their marriage after they're married. And I say this, you're like two completely different people, and if Christ is not in the focus of both of your lives, and you're not both growing in nearness to Him, then your marriage cannot be what it should be. You must grow to Him. Because instead of growing closer to each other directly across the bottom of the triangle, which brings destruction, Christ is drawing you to Himself, both of you, husband and wife, and in doing that, He's drawing you closer to Himself and closer to one another. Same thing's happening in our passage. Paul is saying, God is drawing you to Himself in Christ. Jews and Gentiles, as He brings you close to Himself, He is bringing you close to one another. You're being grafted into one family, one body. Now this is totally new in the concept of the mind of the Jews and the Gentiles. It is not new in the plan of God. This has always been the plan of God. He displays it even in the Old Covenant. Yet Israel rejects it. I think about this often and this week I couldn't pass it up. My mind went to the Gospels and I read through um, the Gospel according to Mark. And as I read through it, I, I just would pause and reflect on every time Jesus went in the temple, I would pause and reflect on the pain going in the temple he must have experienced. I mean, he would have entered in and he would have gone through the court and he would have seen as he looked an outer court filled with Gentiles. And this hard separation that had occurred in the hearts of the Jewish people would have grieved him. There was no going to the Gentiles with the Jews. They hated those people. They didn't really want them in their temple. As a matter of fact, they posted a script Above the entrance into the court of the uh, women. And we found two of them, and that post, uh, that script, that warning was this basically saying, Anyone who enters unlawfully into this court incurs on their own head the death which will ensue. I can only imagine the grief Jesus must have felt at the hardness of the Jewish people against the Gentiles. The hatred. They had not been called out and separated for the sake of being separate. They had been called out from among the nations and made a nation for the sake of reaching the nations. And they rejected their call. And it must have grieved his heart to see this hatred. To see this animosity. It must have grieved him as he walked the streets. And found sinners crying out for help. And no one helping them. It must have grieved him as he helped the sinners and the prostitutes. And his own religious leaders in the Jewish nation despised him for it. It must have grieved him because of the separation. The hard separation. Realize God had separated the Jews from the Gentiles. That I agree with. But the purpose he did it for is not the purpose the Jews were fulfilling in his day. In Jesus' day, they felt they were separate to be elite, to be totally separate. To be not just distinct for purpose of calling others to God, but just distinct as God's people. We're in, you're out. Oh, how it must have grieved his heart. And how it must have grieved Paul as he becomes one in Christ. And now these temple sacrifices are continuing and how he must have looked at the temple and thought... What a disaster. What a mockery to our God this has become. As he worshipped Christ, it must have grieved Him. So we look at this text and we sense some of his grief and his excitement and his anticipation of the reality that is in Christ. First of all, we see our in the flesh condition doesn't matter. Verse 11. Look at it. Remember... Remember, that's going to be here and in verse 12. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. That's where I got in the flesh. Our in the flesh condition doesn't matter. Therefore, remember that you Gent- that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Then he describes their in the flesh condition. Called the uncircumcision. By what is called the circumcision. Now, in the the original language, this says, called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Paul points out that what's going on in the Jewish realm of his day is not of God. They would have thought they were of God. But Paul's pointing it out. And look what he says. He goes further. Not only are they so-called circumcised people, but they're only circumcised in their flesh and That's one to remember. We'll pick that up in just a minute. Paul's telling us that what we are in the flesh doesn't in the final matter it doesn't matter in the final analysis it just doesn't add up it doesn't matter these circumcised Jews could call the Gentiles the uncircumcision they could look down on them as apart from God as apart from God and apart from his mercy and apart from his blessing and his benefits and the apostle Paul indicates here by the very way that he's speaking that it's not what we are in the flesh that finally matters it's not what's in the flesh that matters. Can you imagine this letter's being read among Jews and Gentiles in the church? I can imagine that there may have been some Jewish converts, those who have become Christians, who, when they hear verse 11, boy, they are, they are thinking, hammer them, Paul. Tell them they weren't like us. That's what their flesh wanted to say. Listen to what Paul says. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, not by God, but by human hands. Paul, just in this way, is saying to us that it doesn't matter who you are, what nation you're a part of, whether you've been circumcised in the flesh or not circumcised. What matters is, do you have faith in the Messiah? That's where he's going. Not that you're circumcised or uncircumcised. What really matters is, is your trust in the Messiah? Is He your hope? Is He your salvation? Paul is firmly rejecting the idea that outward sacramental uh, operations like circumcision or in our day baptism finally save you. They don't save you. When we put someone in the water up here, and we dunk them under the water, it is a meaningful and important symbol, but it doesn't save them. And the problem in the Jewish world of Paul's day and Jesus' day, they thought circumcision in the flesh saves us. Are you one of God's people? They would have answered, yes. Go in private, I'll show you. That's how crude they have become about this symbol. We see that in Paul's language in Corinth, where he talks about the marks in his flesh. You want to talk about the mark in your flesh? I'll show you the mark in my own flesh. You're no better than me, you who are circumcised with hands. Don't look down at me, because I, like my master, associate and love and bring close Gentiles. Don't look down on me. I'm no less uh, no less one of God's than you are. So we see that he's saying... Yes, outward symbols may set us apart in the flesh, but they don't do it in our hearts and they don't do it in reality before God. The Jewish people could have said, we've received the sign of the covenant. And they had. They had received the sign of the covenant. We've received the ceremonial law. Yes, they did receive the ceremonial law. And apart from faith in Christ, do you know what they're going to get for having the sign of the covenant and the ceremonial law? If they're outside of Christ, they're going to get greater judgment. Because they've been given a privilege which the Gentiles didn't have in their flesh. Just like I'll tell you very strictly children and unsaved adults. You sit under the preaching of God's Word every day. You sit under a covenant group of people who have gathered to worship a living and true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And you reject it you will receive greater judgment greater penalty the advantage will become the greatest of disadvantages to you that's what happened to the jewish people they had great advantages being born a jew of the flesh and because they didn't come to christ they were about to receive greater judgment greater separation it will it will get it will get us nothing in terms of eternity by who we are in the flesh and so paul at the very outset of verse 11, makes it clear that just being circumcised or being uncircumcised doesn't matter. That's not the point. It's the same thing he says in Romans chapter 2. Turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 26. This in Ephesians 2 is a very simple passage. But really, if you go to Paul's pristine doctrinal letter of Romans, you see it in chapter 1. He outlines the fate of the Gentiles, the pagans those who are outside the community of faith. And then in chapter 2, he turns to those in the beginning of chapter 3 who have been given the law. And look what he says in verse 26. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The Jewish answer would be no. The Jewish answer of Paul's day would have been, no, absolutely not. He'd still be a pagan. He has to be circumcised. And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are transgressors of the law of God? You have the outward things right, but the inner things are all scrambled up and confused. If you think the outward is going to save you, you're totally mistaken. I tell you, these pagan Gentiles are going to judge you. That's what he's saying. For he is not a Jew. Careful, read this. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. He's covered this in Ephesians already. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 saying and 14, saying that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's our circumcision. That is our circumcision. So we carry a much deeper, truer mark than the outward mark. And Paul's not saying anything new in Romans chapter 2. If you know the Old Testament, you know he's not. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, listen to what God said through Moses. And now Israel, verse 12, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? Walk in all His ways. Love Him to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. That's the advantage they have. As you are this day... Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. What you would have expected, if it really mattered to be ethnically Jewish, is for him to say, circumcise your flesh, so that you know you're in the community of faith. But Moses says, no. Moses says, circumcise your hearts. He's given them a job they can't do. Do you realize all of the congregation standing at the foot listening to Moses would have said in their hearts, You want us to do what? Cut our hearts? It was impossible unless by faith you've come into Christ in their day and our day, and then the Holy Spirit circumcises your heart. Paul's not adding to God's Word. He's showing us the fullness of the Word. He's given us what it says. And He continues there. He gives them. He says, Yet the Lord set His heart and love on you and our fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe It's interesting that he put that there. Could it be that the Jews were using their circumcised flesh as a bribe before God? Oh, but God, you said if we circumcised ourselves, we were in the covenant. Moses says, don't be foolish. God's not going to be bribed by your outward works. You better be circumcised of the heart. This is the same thing Paul says in Romans chapter 2. It's the same thing he's emphasizing in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. It's the work of the grace of God in the heart of a man or woman that transforms them inside. That's what matters. Not the outside. Those outward signs, the circumcision, the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, those things were outward signs of inward spiritual realities like baptism, like the communion service we participate in. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. But if you don't have the inward reality, be careful because you trample the blood of Christ under your feet that's what he's telling these jewish people be careful jews and gentiles that you don't trample christ under your feet because your heart is not circumcised those are, but if the inward spiritual reality isn't there the signs don't mean anything so the apostle paul's making it clear that what really matters is our circumcision of the heart our relationship with christ And so, I I just want to ask the question, where are you with Christ? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's no act that is holy enough for God to accept you. The only way you can be accepted is in Christ. And so, are you placing your hope in the fact that you're a member of a church and that you have partaken in the in the baptismal pool, and you are taking the communion bread and wine, are you trusting in those things, the outward signs, the fact that you feel good when you're around good people? Be careful that you're not a Jew outwardly only, but be a Jew inwardly. That's what Paul would say. Secondly, outside of Christ, we are all without a Messiah. We are all without a nation we are all without a promise. The promise. We're all without hope. We're all without God. That's verse 12. That's what he says. Five things that the Jews had an advantage of in the old covenant that the Gentiles did not have. Circumcision was not something only Jews did. It's just the Jews were the only ones who took pride in the symbol. Some Gentile nations also circumcised their children. That wasn't some new invention that God came up with. But... It was the Jews who took pride in it. So much so that, like the Greeks of their day, they are one of the most closed cultures ever in the humanity's record, in human record. They made people go through great hoops to be part of their fellowship. I mean, it, it it was astounding. And yet, there are examples of it in the Old Testament. Like Ruth, the Moabitess, like Naaman, the Syrian who did become Jews. But they did it based on the fact that they had been drawn to God in their hearts. They had a relationship with Him. So the second thing we see is that if you're outside of Christ, you don't have these five blessings. First, you're separated from Christ. You were at one time separated from Christ in verse 12. Now, be careful. It's not that they are separated from Christ in the sense that God won't accept them, it's that they don't hear of the Messiah. If you lived in Assyria, prior to the Jewish captivity, it's very likely that you never heard of a promise of a Messiah. If you lived in China, or in Asia, what we call China today, I can guarantee you, in the Old Covenant, you had never heard of a promised Messiah. You knew nothing of it. So in that way, you were separated from the Messiah. You were separated from Christ. You didn't even know He was coming, is what He's telling these Gentiles. You had no way to know. You were separated. What did Jesus do? What Jesus did when He came, what Jesus did when He came was fulfill the law. He atoned for sin. He opened access into the very presence of God. He paid the way. For those who have saving knowledge of God. And what Paul is saying is, apart from Jesus Christ and apart from faith in Him, you do not have access to God. You are without a Messiah. That was the condition of the Gentiles prior to Christ's coming. Now that Christ has come, the Gospel is going forward to all the nations. Therefore, I can say to you today, if you're outside of Christ today, you are without a Messiah, you have no one to bring you into the presence of God. you don't have a mediator, as we talked about earlier in our service. Secondly, notice that he says that you were these Gentiles were excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel. in other words, they didn't have any place at the table. they were not accepted as people of God. That was a distinct title of the Jewish our Israelite nation. The temple was a testimony to that, as I said earlier. The Gentiles had an outer court. Then you came into the court of the women of Israel. Then you came into the court of the laymen of Israel. Then you came into the inner court, which only the priests, the the tribe of Levite might go into, and then the Holy of Holies. So there was a segmentation, there was a separation which existed, and it was felt very practically in their society. And Paul's saying, you Gentiles, you couldn't cross the line. You were never counted in the commonwealth of Israel. Apart from Christ, what Paul's saying is, you're where the Gentiles were. If you're here today without Christ, you have no way to God. And you have no acceptance among God's people. And based on the truth of verse 11, I would say that's whether you're Hebrew descent or any other descent. Without Christ, you're excluded from the promise of the Messiah. You don't know there's a way to God. And secondly, you don't have a nation. You don't have a people, a commonwealth. You're not counted there. It's, it's amazing that the, the thing the Ephesians would have bragged about, was their, like all others, was their Roman citizenship. And Paul's saying, your Roman citizenship doesn't matter to God. You can have that all you want. Caesar might accept you. God won't. You need to be counted among the people of God. And to do that, you must come through the way, the Messiah. Third, we notice that he says that these Gentiles are strangers to the covenant of promise. The covenants of promise. Notice, promise is singular, because there was only one promise made. It was made to Abraham. Abram, in Genesis 12. It's explained further in other passages, but the original promise stands. It cannot be abrogated, it cannot be changed. Remember that God made a promise to Abraham to be Abraham's God and to be a God to Abraham's children and his children's children unto all generations. And in order to confirm that promise, God made a series of other covenants within the greater covenant or the greater promise to Abraham and his descendants so that God covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with Moses, with David, with Isaiah... And by succession of these covenants, God confirmed His promise to His people in order to what? To assure them of His mercy. All the Old Testament is assuring the people of God's mercy, of the, fulfillment of the future fulfillment of His promise. But the Gentiles had never received the covenant of promise. They knew nothing about it. They had never been welcomed into the covenant of promise. They had no claim on the rich and gracious promise that God had given to His people. And that's your condition this morning if you're outside of Christ, according to verse 12. You have no way, the Messiah, you have no way into the presence of God. You have no right, no place at the table of God's people. And you, thirdly, are without the covenant of promise. We're going to get into more of this, but I just want to say, one of the greatest songs ever written for children is Father Abraham. It it catches it all. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Abraham is, make no mistake about it, is counted as the head of three great traditions. The Islamic tradition, the Jewish tradition, and the true tradition, Christ, the Messiah, Christianity. And the beauty of Christ, this last one and most important one, is that through Christ, the Jews and the Islamics and the other pagans can be brought near to God and they can sing the song father abraham with the people of god when you come to christ you have a place with the messiah at the table of the people of god to claim the covenant of promise like any other any other son of abraham you are not a supposed son of abraham you are a son of abraham That's the third thing we see. We also see that they had no hope. It says in the text, they have no hope. Having no hope. The only hope in the world is Christ, and they didn't have Christ, and therefore they had no hope. The hope that's described in the New Testament looks for the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's universal and sovereign reign fully over all the earth. And Paul is saying to these Gentiles, outside of Christ, you walk in the world without the enormous blessing of the hope that's been promised in the Messiah through the promise of the covenant. Without those things, you have no hope. So that they know that even though... If you come into Christ, even though you hear a walking in the valley of the shadow of death, there's coming a day when God will set everything right, and you have hope. There's two ages in the work of God, two great ages in the Word of God in the Word of God. Now and then when He comes again. It's the two great ages of God. Christ on the cross is the center point of the now age. It doesn't open a totally new age. It simply broadens what we saw in the Old Covenant. Everyone from Adam till the last man before Christ returns will live in the now age. And then when Christ comes, we will be in the then. We will be in the then. And that's what he's saying here. You have in Christ a Messiah... A way to God, you have a place at the table of the people of God, you have the covenant of promise, you have hope, and you have God. Negatively, he says, you are without God in the world. All of those who are apart from Christ are without God, and that's the ultimate, that's the greatest problem. We're made as human beings in the image of God. We are image bearers and we're made to fellowship with God. And the very purpose that God made us for is that we might glory, glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But these Gentiles in Ephesus are apart from God, the Apostle Paul says. They're, they're not trusting in Jesus Christ, even if you're, you're counted among the people of, of your nation. You're without a nation. Even if you think you have a place, you have no place. You walk through this world without the knowledge of the true God, and the Apostle Paul says that that is all of our circumstances before Christ. And finally, he says in verse 13, in Christ we are brought near by the blood of Christ. So we see finally we're brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the great promise. The glories, the glories of this verse lead us into the heart of this passage in verses 14 through 18. It gets much better. Even than what we've seen today. What we've seen today is unbelievable. If you, you can't catch the weight of it maybe. Because you've really never felt what the Gentiles in Ephesus felt. You've, you've never been discriminated based on the fact that you're a Gentile. It was the greatest separation man had ever known. Jew and Gentile. And Paul is telling them this. And I can only imagine the faces of the people as the letters being read. The Jewish shock and the Gentile Overjoyed a sense of full relief because when he said when he told them you were without a messiah and you were without a nation and you were without you were you were without the covenant of promise and you were without hope and you were without God they're all saying amen and then verse thirteen then verse thirteen but now in Christ Jesus you who were once Far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I imagine tears flowing from the Gentiles in the congregation. Having heard of Christ, they were still being treated probably like second class Christians. I don't think there was a hard barrier anymore in the church. God had done redemptive work in the hearts of the Jews that were Christians now. But we see in Acts 15 evidence that even the strictest and most godly Christians of that day were struggling with this idea. And so the Gentiles, I imagine, were sitting there with their Jewish brothers feeling separated. Feeling this outward distinction. Feeling awkward. Not knowing their way around. The scripture and the promise. And now Paul says, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I imagine the dams broke and their hearts flooded with joy. And I imagine Jewish eyes filling with tears. For a different reason, maybe. Out of repentance. He nailed us. He set us up in verse 11. We thought he was going to say circumcision matters, and then he twisted it. He's telling us that we once had an advantage. That was only so we might bring our Gentile brothers near. And Christ has done what we failed to do as a nation. We didn't do it. And I sense repentance from the Jewish eye in the congregation. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's grace. That you have been once were a part of the people, or were set apart from the people, now you've been brought into the people. Once you had no assurance of the promise of the covenant, now you are fully assured of the promise of the covenant. Once you did not share any of the blessed hope of His return, and now you share fully in the blessed hope of His coming again. By trusting in Jesus Christ, by faith, union to Jesus Christ, you've been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. And I want us to see quickly in this verse that this is in keeping with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, people would have talked about experiencing God in their life by the fact that God watches over them and protects them. Because He doesn't sleep and He doesn't slumber. Even if they're surrounded by their enemies, He's watching over them. Even if they're going through a trial, He's right there with them. Even if they're asleep and they can't take care of themselves, He's taking care of them. Because He never slumbers and He never sleeps. That's the Old Testament speaking. In way of talking about the experience of anyone who has living, who has knowledge and relationship with the true and living God. And now our Gentile brothers feel that same presence. Can you imagine the fear in your heart? Can you remember the fear in your heart before you were a Christian of dying? And now the sure of peace and assurance that when you die you will be with Him. That's the separation they felt. And now it's gone. Another way of the Old Testament talking about being with God. or It was God drawing near to us. God coming near to us. Deuteronomy 4, seven says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him. Moses is saying, what nation was a, has a God who is near? We cry out to Him, we turn around to call on Him, and He's there. He's near to us. He's drawn near to us. We know Him. He is near to us. That's what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. And the psalmist sings about it. Turn If you look in Psalm 148, verse 14, it says, He has lifted up a horn for His people, His godly ones, even for the sons of Israel. And then, listen to how He describes the people of God. They are a people near to Him. But you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What I'm telling you is, Paul, like his master Christ, did away with the Jew-Gentile distinction. He utterly abolishes it. Psalm 148.14, God lifts up a horn and He will save all of Israel because He is near to us. And Ephesians 2.13 says, Gentiles, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So no matter where you live and no matter what descent of man you are, if you are in Christ, you have a God. You have hope. You have the covenant of promise. You have a people group. You have the true circumcision because you have the one Messiah, Father in heaven.